Chapter Five of Hunter Patrol by H. Beam Piper and John McGuire. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. Three weeks later, he murdered his friend and partner, Bill Myers. It was suicide. Nobody but Fred Benson knew that he had taken fifty cc of pure ingredient beta in a couple of cocktails while listening to the queer phonograph record that he had played half an hour before blowing his brains out. The decision had cost Benson a battle with his conscience, from which he had emerged the sole survivor. The conscience was buried along with Bill Myers, and all that remained was a purpose. Every flave stayed on the market unaltered. The night before the national election, the World Sovereignty Party distributed thousands of gallons of every flave. Their speakers, on every radio and television network, were backgrounded by soft music. The next day, when the vote was counted, it was found that the American nationalists had carried a few backwoods precincts in the Rockies and the southern Appalachians, and one county in Alaska, where there had been no distribution of every flave. The dreams came back more often, now that Bill Myers was gone. Benson was only beginning to realize what a large fact in his life the companionship of the young psychologist had been. Well, a world of peace and beauty was an omelet worth the breaking of many eggs. He purchased another great tract of land near the city, and donated it to the U.N. for their new headquarters buildings. The same architects and landscapes who had created the estate at Carondelet were put to work on it. In the middle of what was to become World City, they erected a small home for Fred Benson. Benson was often invited to address the delegates to the U.N. Always there was soft piped-in music behind his words. He saw to it that every flave was available free to all U.N. personnel. The Senate of the United States elected him as perpetual U.S. Delegate-in-Chief to the U.N., not long after the Security Council elected him their perpetual chairman. In keeping with his new dignities, and to ameliorate his youthful appearance, he grew a mustache and eventually a small beard. The black notebook in which he kept the records of his experiments was always with him. Page after page was filled with notes. Experiments in sonics, like the one which had produced the ultrasonic stun-gun, which rendered lethal weapons unnecessary for police and defense purposes, are the new musical combinations with which he was able to play upon every emotion and instinct. But he still dreamed, the same recurring dream of the young soldier and the old man in the office. By now he was consistently identifying himself with the latter. He took to carrying one of the thick-barrel stun pistols always now. Alone he practiced constantly with it, drawing and breaking soap bubbles with the concentrated sound waves it projected. It was silly, perhaps, but it helped him in his dreams. Now the old man with whom he identified himself would draw a stun pistol occasionally to defend himself. The years drained one by one through the hourglass of time. Year after year the world grew more peaceful, more beautiful. There were no more incidents like the mass suicide of Munich or the mass perversions of New Orleans. The playing and even the composing of music was strictly controlled. 
No dangerous notes or chords could be played in a world drenched with ingredient beta. Steadily the idea grew that peace and beauty were supremely good, that violence and ugliness were supremely evil, even competitive sports which stimulated violence, even children born ugly and misshapen. He finished the breakfast which he had prepared for himself, he trusted no food that another had touched, and knotted the vivid blue scarf about his neck before slipping into the loose coat of glossy plum-brown, then checked the stun-pistol and pocketed the black notebook, its plasty-leather cover glossy from long use. He stood in front of the mirror, brushing his beard, now snow-white. Two years now, and he would be eighty. Had he been anyone but the guide, he would have long ago retired to the absolute peace and repose of one of the elders' havens. Peace and repose, however, were not for the guide. It would take another twenty years to finish his task of remaking the world, and he would need every day of it that his medical staff could borrow or steal for him. He made an eye-baffling practice draw with a stun-gun, then holstered it and started down the spiral stairway to the office below. There was the usual mass of papers on his desk. A corps of secretaries had screened out everything but what required his own personal and immediate attention, but the business of guiding a world could only be reduced to a certain point. On top was the digest of the world's news for the past twenty-four hours, and below that was the agenda for the afternoon's meeting of the Council. He laid both in front of him, reading over the former, and occasionally making a note on the latter. Once his glance strayed to the cardboard box in front of him, with the envelope taped to it, the latest improvement on the every flav syrup, with the report from his own chemists, all conditioned to obedience, loyalty, and secrecy, if they thought he was going to try that damn stuff on himself. There was a sudden gleam of light in the middle of the room in front of his desk. No, a mist, through which a blue light seemed to shine. The stun pistol was in his hand, his instinctive reaction to anything unusual, and pointed into the shining mist when it vanished, and a man appeared in front of him, a man in the baggy green combat uniform that he himself had worn fifty years before, a man with a heavy automatic pistol in his hand. The gun was pointed directly at him. The guide aimed quickly and pressed the trigger of the ultrasonic stunner. The pistol dropped soundlessly on the thick-piled rug. The man in uniform slumped in an inert heap. The guide sprang to his feet and rounded the desk, crossing to and bending over the intruder. Why, this was the dream that had plagued him through the years! But it was ending differently. The young man—his face was startlingly familiar somehow—was not killing the old man. Those years of practice with the stun-pistol. He stooped and picked the automatic up. The young man was unconscious, and the guide had his pistol now. He slipped the automatic into his pocket and straightened beside his inert would-be slayer. A shimmering globe of blue mist appeared around them, brightening to a dazzle, and dimmed again to a colored mist before it vanished, and when it cleared away he was standing beside the man in uniform in the sandy bed of a dry stream at the mouth of a little ravine, and directly in front of him, looming above him, was a thing that had not been seen in the world for close to half a century, 
a big, hot-smelling tank with a red star on its turret. He might have screamed. The din of its treads and engines deafened him, and in panic he turned and ran, his old legs racing, his old heart pumping madly. The noise of the tank increased as machine-guns joined the uproar. He felt the first bullet strike him, just above the hips, no pain, just a tremendous impact. He might have felt the second bullet, too, as the ground tilted and rushed up at his face. Then he was diving into a tunnel of blackness that had no end. Captain Fred Benson of Benson's Butchers had been jerked back into consciousness when the field began to build around him. He was struggling to rise, fumbling the grenade out of his pocket when it collapsed. Sure enough, right in front of him, so close that he could smell the very heat of it, was the big tank with the red star on its turret. He cursed the sextet of sanctimonious double-crossers eight thousand miles and fifty years away in space-time. The machine-guns had stopped, probably because they couldn't be depressed far enough to aim at him now. That was a notorious fault of some of the newer pan-Soviet tanks. He had the bomb out of his pocket when the machine-guns began to fire again, this time at something on his left. Wondering what had created the diversion, he rocked back on his heels, pressed the button, and heaved, closing his eyes. As the thing left his fingers, he knew that he had thrown too hard. His muscles, accustomed to the heavier cast-iron grenades, had betrayed him. For a moment he was closer to despair than at any other time in the whole phantasmagoric adventure. Then he was hit, with physical force, by a wave of almost solid heat. It didn't smell like the heat of the tank's engines. It smelled like molten metal, with undertones of burned flesh. Immediately there was a multiple explosion that threw him flat, as the tank's ammunition went up. There were no screams. It was too fast for that. He opened his eyes. The turret and top armor of the tank had vanished. The two massive treads had been toppled over, one to either side. The body had collapsed between them, and it was running sticky trickles of molten metal. He blinked, rubbed his eyes on the back of his hand, and looked again. Of all the many blasted and burnt-out tanks, Soviet and UN, that he had seen, this was the most completely wrecked thing in his experience. And he had done that with one grenade. Remembering the curious manner in which, at the last, the tank had been firing at something to the side, he looked around, to see the crumpled body in the pale violet-gray trousers and the plum-brown coat. Finding his carbine and reloading it, he went over to the dead man, turning the body over. He was an old man with a white mustache and a small white beard. Why, if the mustache were smaller and there were no beard, he would pass for Benson's own father, who had died in 1962. The clothes weren't Turkish or Armenian or Persian or anything one could expect in this country. The old man had a pistol in his coat pocket, and Benson pulled it out and looked at it, then did a double-take, and grabbed for his own holster to find it empty. The pistol was his own 9.5 Colt automatic. He looked at the dead man with the white beard and the vivid blue neck-scarf, and he was sure that he had never seen him before. He'd had that pistol when he'd come down the ravine. There was another pistol under the dead man's coat in a shoulder holster, 
a queer thing with a thick round barrel like an old percussion pepper-box, and a diaphragm instead of a muzzle. Probably projected ultrasonic waves. He holstered his own colt and pocketed the unknown weapon. There was a black plasti-leather-bound notebook. It was full of notes. Chemical formula, yes, and some stuff on sonics. That tied in with the queer pistol. He pocketed that. He'd look both over, when he had time and privacy, two scarce commodities in the army. At that moment there was a sudden rushing overhead, and an instant later the barrage began falling beyond the crest of the ridge. He looked at his watch, blinked, and looked again. That barrage was due at 0550. According to his watch it was 0726. That was another mystery, to go with the question of who the dead man was, where he had come from, and how he had gotten hold of Benson's pistol. Yes, and how that tank had gotten blown up. Benson was sure he had used his last grenade back at the supply dump. To hell with it, he'd worry about all that later. The attack was due any minute now, and there would be fleeing commies coming up the valley ahead of the U.N. advance. He'd better get himself placed before they started coming in on him. He stopped thinking about the multiple mystery, a solution to which seemed to dance maddeningly just out of his mental reach, and found himself a place among the rocks to wait. And while he waited, he looked over the plasti-leather-bound notebook. In civil life he had been a high school chemistry teacher, but the stuff in this book was entirely new to him. Some of it he could understand readily enough, the rest of it he could dig out for himself. Stuff about some kind of a carbonated soft drink, and about a couple of unbelievable-looking long-chain molecules. After a while fugitive communists began coming up the valley to make their stand. Benson put away the notebook, picked up his carbine, and cuddled the stock to his cheek. End of chapter 5 End of Hunter Patrol by H. Beam Piper and John McGuire This story read by Phil Chenevere in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, July 2012